Hello, and welcome to a special edition of First Importance, the official podcast of First Baptist Church in West Memphis, Arkansas. I'm Pastor Josh Hall. And now let's go to our Bible study already in progress as Dr. Jimmy Milliken and I look at the subject of eschatology. We are in the midst of a study in eschatology, uh, studying what is going to happen in the end times. And uh, we are in our third session. I am so excited about doing this with Dr. Milliken. Uh, This is my second lesson in a row. And beginning next week, Dr. Milliken will teach two Wednesday nights in a row. And I'm enjoying this because, number one, I'm getting to spend a little more time with Dr. Milliken uh, than I normally get to. And then, number two, I'm getting to learn a lot more from Dr. Milliken than I normally do. And those are great things. And so um, I'm very excited about being able to do this. Now, Uh, We're going to look at a very special topic tonight. We're going to look at the judgment seat of Christ, the accountability that we have as believers. But before we really get down into this subject and really begin to learn, let me just talk to you real quick about eschatology and the importance of us being familiar and, and with and having a good biblical basis for our doctrine in eschatology because some people would look at the end times and they would look at the book of revelation and they'd get to study these things and as dr milliken mentioned in our first session they begin to sensationalize these things and they become uh uh just uh, concentrated on that doctrine alone and many people use the doctrine of eschatology as a doctrine of fear the end times, and it, it kind of produces a little bit of fear in our hearts. You know, in our flesh, we have all types of uh, things vying for our attention to rip our eyes away from Jesus. And over the last year, we've really seen around the United States and the world that even Christians have a fascination with conspiracy theories and with the end of times. A lot of times that That fascination is there because of fear. But I want you to know something, friends. The subject of eschatology should not produce fear in the lives of the faithful. What we are talking about here is not something to be feared, but something to look forward to. Our God is on his throne, and he is accomplishing that which he desires to accomplish. And because we are his children, we are on the good side of it. Because we are his children, because he is victorious, we are victorious. The purpose of our studying eschatology is not meant to just strike one of the fear, anxiety nerves in your heart and give you something to latch on to, but no, the the subject of eschatology and us diving into the Word is meant for you to look at Jesus and to see how good He is and to look at the midst of of the difficult, crazy world that we're in and saying, our God is still on His throne. And he has a plan. 
With that being in mind, let's do just a quick review of what we have already begun. Don't worry, I've worked on my art skills for tonight, okay? I know that last time I disappointed so many of you, and so I just want to give us a quick timeline again of, of where we are, okay? That's the straightest line I can draw, and we're going to look at some concrete things that we know are going to happen here in the end of times. We know that right now we are living in what I'm going to call the church age. But the church age is going to come uh, to an abrupt halt in, in, a, in a cataclysmic event that we call the rapture. That's the next event on God's prophetic calendar. We spoke about it uh, several weeks ago in our last session. This next event is called the rapture. This is spoken of in Scripture. We made a good case for it a few weeks ago. Um, we could right now review uh, where the, all the rapture could be placed, but when we last left off, I believe we left a solid case for the rapture being the next event on God's prophetic calendar and how we don't believe that it's going to happen in the middle of the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation. But we believe that there is a good biblical case for the rapture being the next event on God's prophetic calendar. We'll pick up here tonight, but real quick, let's talk about what's going to happen in the meantime. Because after the church is raptured up, and after the church is caught up to be with Jesus in the air, and to be with him forever, there will occur a time period on earth known as the tribulation. This is a seven-year period that will occur across the entire world. The seven-year tribulation is split up into two uh, equal portions. The first three and a half years will be the rise of the Antichrist. There will be terrible events that occur during this time. Humanity will see devastating earthquakes. They will experience the judgment of God. But at the same time, they'll be distracted by the rise of a charismatic leader that we call in the Bible the Antichrist. The world will have a one-world government. The world will have a one-world religion. Everyone will finally seem to be at peace, even though the world is very clearly shattering around them. Uh, the singer in the Beatles will finally, uh, I forget what was the singer who wrote the song Imagine. Can anyone help me with that? John Lennon, he'll, he'll finally get what he wants, no religion to, and you'll see the first three and a half years will be a, a time of tribulation, but a time of distraction as the Antichrist rises. But the last three and a half years will be time of devastation. The judgment of God will be pouring out during those three and a half years, the first three and a half years, and rightly so, but the last three and a half years, it will be cataclysmic. It will be uh, undeniable, and yet the Antichrist will still have sway. But here, at the end of the... Um, uh, great Tribulation, which is what we'll call this. I'll just put the abbreviations here. At the end of the Great Tribulation, uh, the Antichrist and the beast and, and all of the armies of the world will gather together to make war on the saints. And by the way, uh, uh, Dr. Milliken will be speaking about the Great Tribulation the next two weeks. 
But it will come to an end when Jesus descends from heaven, comes riding on a white horse with those who've been raptured and with those who've gone on before. He will return and he will meet that great army in what we call the Battle of Armageddon. And here at the Battle of Armageddon, with just the words that come out of Jesus' mouth, with a sword that will come out, all of those armies, all of that might, all of the technology that the world could muster together to fight against God will come to an end in just a moment. As quickly as we are raptured up, God's word will destroy his enemies in what we call the Battle of Armageddon. I'm just going to put B-A here so we can have the time. This will, uh, as soon as the battle of Armageddon is fought and won, the Bible says that Jesus will take the Antichrist and will take the false prophet and will throw them into uh, uh, the pit, will throw them into hell, into the lake of fire rather. And this will begin what we call the thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennial reign of Christ, where Jesus will reign on earth. The effects of the curse will be gone. Jesus uh, will rule physically on the earth, and it will be a time where the lion will lay down with the lamb. But here, at the very end of the thousand years, Satan will be loosed for a season. Jesus will put that to an end, and then we have the great white throne judgment. And then after that, we'll spend an eternity with Jesus. That's our, that's our kind of timeline of what we're looking at. But what we're looking at tonight is what happens after the church is raptured. What happens right here? Here I want to talk to you tonight about something that's been forgotten Admittedly, even in my own doctrine and practices until the last several months. It's the doctrine of the judgment seat of Christ. There are three specific judge, judgments mentioned in God's Word. First, you'll see in your outline, there's the judgment of sin at Calvary. First Peter chapter 2 and verses 21 through 25 says the following, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justice, justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here we learn that on the cross, Jesus took the weight of the judgment of our sins. Can I get an amen here tonight? For your sins, past, present, and future, Jesus paid the ultimate price. And God didn't go easy on Jesus because Jesus was his only son. No, my son, I imagine the words in heaven rang out before all of time. No, my son, if you are to take their place, you'll have to pay every last penny for their judgment. 
And the Bible says that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. The Bible speaks of the judgment that occurred at Mount Calvary, where Jesus, hanging on a cross, took the judgment of my sin and of yours. The second judgment that is spoken, spoken of in the Bible, which we will speak of later on in our eschatology sessions, are the judgment of the lost, or what we call the great white throne judgment. This will occur at the end of all time, and this is the judgment where all of mankind will be brought to the throne and will be divided into those who are followers, those who have been born again, and those who have not. This will be the final judgment. Everything will be laid bare. There's nothing at this judgment that will matter. What you and I have done, what we've tried to muster with our lives, not, it won't matter how much you've given to charity or how many times you've attended church. This judgment is not about that. This, this judgment is simply about whether or not your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And friends, there is no greater joy that anyone can have than to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life and to be able to, on that day, have the Lord say to you, I know you. You're mine. The great white throne judgment will be a judgment on the lost for their rebellion, for their not accepting the light, for their loving of darkness rather than light. And then finally, our subject for today is the judgment of believers. You have the judgment of sin at Calvary. We see that in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25. The judgment of the lost. You find that in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. <clears throat> and then today, we're going to look at the judgment of believers and what we call the judgment seat of Christ. We have two basic texts that we're going to look to today to justify biblically this a very real concept and event that will happen in the future. The first is Romans 14.10, which, in which Paul says uh, to the Romans, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And then 2 Corinthians Chapter 5 and verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 is really going to be what we're going to lean heavily on tonight. But you can also look later on when you go home, you can look at other supplementary texts here that will... Uh, validate uh, our doctrine in the judgment seat of Christ. Let's look next at some terminology. Our term judgment seat is, uh, in the Greek, it's the word bema. You may, how many of you have heard of the term the bema seat? Have you ever heard that? Some of you? Okay. Well, you've heard it today. So if any teacher asks you in the future, have you heard of the bema seat? You can say, yes, I, I learned it uh, at First Baptist Church West Memphis on a Wednesday night. Uh, uh, but uh, the, the Greek word is the word bema. Bema is used in the Gospels and in the book of Acts of the raised platform where the Roman magistrate or a ruler sat to make decisions and pass 
sentence. That's the word that's going to be used in the verses that we just read, Romans 14, 10, and then 2 Corinthians 5, 10. See, we're establishing that the, that the seat in which Jesus is sitting on that we must stand before is indeed a seat of judgment. Its original use, as you can see in our notes, its original use among the Greeks referred to the Isthmian Games where the contestants would compete for a prize under the careful scrutiny of judges who would make sure that every rule of the contest was observed. The victor of a given event who participated according to the rules was led by the judge to the platform called the Bema, and there the laurel or the wreath was placed on his head as a symbol of victory. Uh, you will hear, uh, if, you, if you listen, if you, if you spend much time in evangelical world, ideally you will hear of the Bema seat of Christ. And the idea is that believers will stand before a seat of judgment. Now, before we move on to this next part, let me address this because so many times as believers, we think that because we have been saved, uh, that there is no more judgment for us. After all, doesn't the Bible say there is therefore now no more condemnation? Now, brothers and sisters, I've got some good news for you. Because of the wrath that Jesus Christ incurred on Calvary, and because of the empty tomb in that garden, for those who've repented and believed in the name of Jesus, there is no more condemnation for us. Hell does not await us. The threat of the fire of hell does not await us. But brothers and sisters, let me remind you what the Scripture tells us over and over again. We have been saved for something, for a purpose. We cannot continue in sin so that grace may abound. We will, brothers and sisters, we will stand before a holy judgment seat of God. Let's look at the subjects. We indicates that Paul is writing to and about believers. All the passages dealing with the Bema seat or the rewards are addressed to believers and addressed to pertain to believers or the church. Let me give you an example. In Romans chapter 10 and verses 14 through 12, Paul says to the believers, to the church, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Is there any inclination to you that he could be speaking of a lost person. There shouldn't be. He's speaking of a believer, your brother, or you. Why do you despise your brother? And then he says this. If there was any doubt before, he says, for we. Paul is including himself in on this. And if you thought that maybe brother could refer just to passively humanity, which it, which it never really does in Scripture, here Paul says, for we, me, you, every believer, will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Brothers and sisters... There's coming a day 
where we will stand before Jesus. When Jesus calls us to be home with him, gives us a new body, we'll be up here and we will experience the judgment seat of Christ. This occurs right after the rapture. Now, many people may say, well, why doesn't, many people say that this would occur as soon as you die. I mean, after all, why, why put it off? Why wait, right? As soon as you die, why wouldn't God just say, all right, here, here is how you stewarded well what I gave you. Here is how you did not steward well the time, the abilities, the resources I gave you. Why wouldn't he not just do it then? Uh, I was speaking to Dr. Milliken, who gave me some great, great wisdom on this, and I hope that I don't mess it up. And if I do, he's teaching next week, and he can come back and correct it, Okay. But one of the comments that he made is, is that our sin and the way that we live affects the generations after us, doesn't it? The way that you um, interact with people, the way that you steward the resources that God has given you, it has a profound effect on others around you, and it lasts for generation and generation and generation. A good example, a lot of my young families are watching online right now. And for a lot of our younger families especially, and it's present in, in uh, some of our faithful attenders or some of our people who have been members for a long time as well, but especially with our younger part of our congregation, uh, it is okay oftentimes to miss church for one reason or another, right? And so, well, we've got this game we've got to go to or this this softball thing, but the, I mean, it's always how pastor, we have a prayer, we do this, we do these things. But the reality is, is that whatever you do in moderation, more than likely, more often than not, your kids do to excess. It almost, I would say there are very little exceptions to that rule. There are very little people, and there, there are people who are alcoholics who just got into it on their own, but there are very little people who were not introduced to that by their parents and by their family. That's just the way that that works. And, you know, I've watched as I've seen in my short time here and in my, my time in serving Jesus now for, for, close to, for close to three decades now, I've loved Jesus. And when I look at, when I look at, at people and their, and their lives and maybe, hey, how maybe they, well, we're not going to go to church, but like, you know, we'll just miss one, one Sunday a month. That's all, that's all right, right? That's pretty, that's pretty good uh, for us to do. We still got pretty good stats. Well, their children oftentimes miss much more. And then next thing you know, two generations away, these kids have no foundation of the gospel. No foundation of like, you know, I'm going to tell you what my, my kids learn in Sunday school. It's invaluable. It is. I was recording this past week or getting ready to make an announcement to the church on Facebook Live. And I was telling everyone about uh, our uh, hard, very difficult decision we had to make to cancel services Sunday. 
I know that there are probably all kinds of opinions about that, but several of the leaders in church and I got together, prayed and looked at the situation and decided to go strictly online for your safety. And so I was making an announcement on Facebook, a live video. It's live recording me. Everything that I say is immediately going out on air. There is no place to edit that other than just to delete it when you're over with and pray to God that no one saw whatever it is that you messed up. Well, I'm outside, and I'm walking, and I'm, I'm sharing with the church the decision, and I see Bo outside, and we have just built two snowmen. Me and Bo and Belle built uh, two snowmen, and, and Bo wants to show everybody his snowmen, and I'm pretty proud of my boy, and I'm pretty proud of our snowmen. So I turn the camera around, and I show the snowmen to them, and Bo is looking at me like he wants to say something, and I said, Bo, do you want to say something? He said, yes. I said, son... You can hear me say this on the video. This is for the entire church to hear. Is it going to be something nice? Because I know my boy. And I know my boy because I know me. I said, it's going to be nice. He said, to, he said this. I promise you it wasn't coaxed. I did not draw this out of him. But he looked at the camera and he said, some of y'all don't know, but Jesus is real. I was flabbergasted. I mean, I was incredibly proud that he knew that. And I thought, well, have I said something like that in the house? Have we done something? And then, you know, I think about all those Sundays that he's come home and told us about the, well, with great, like, resources that we've used. He's told us about the lessons he's learned in Sunday school. You know how important that is, that that builds in their character. Listen, the sin that I do now, or not having my family in church, or not stewarding my family well, has an effect that outlives my life. You may say nice things at my funeral, but if I set things in event, if I set events in order that is going to, that is going to make it easy for my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren to fall, I'm going to have to own up to that on some level. Here, we wait to the end of time when we are brought up to be with Jesus in the air to stand before Jesus and give an account. And so let's look one more time at 2 Corinthians 5.10, and I'm going to make a few points, and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap this thing up, okay? 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I want you to see the certainty here. We must we must. This is a certain thing, a certain event. It's set in God's calendar, and there is no delete button. This is a set time, in a certain time. We must do it. I want you to see second with me the extent. We must all you don't get to clip out of this. You've been involved in church. You've tithed. You've shared the gospel with people. You've been as good a person as you can be. You still do not get to clip out of this. You know, I, I remember when, 
When I was in high school, if you had an A average, on many occasions, they let you clip out of the semester test. I didn't clip out of a lot of semester tests. I think someone just said amen, but I hope my son does better than I did. I didn't get to clip out of those semester tests. Listen, friends, it don't matter how good you are in this life. You will not clip out of this. You will stand before a holy God, a God of, of mercy and grace, but we must stand before him and give an account of what we've done with our lives. And brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but that ought to motivate you. This isn't a judgment to see whether or not you're going to heaven or not. We'll see that in a few moments. It is a judgment where we will answer for what we've done in the flesh. It is certain we must. The extent is all of us, every believer, the purpose is appear. This is in the passive in the Greek language. It means uh, more than just to appear. It is rather to be made manifest, to make, be made barren. It's a very public event. Let me tell you, it's almost as if I get this picture in my mind. Don't take this as scripture, but it's almost as if you will stand before God and every believer will stand around and look at all that you've done with your life. That ought to make you think twice. Well, this sin won't affect anybody. There's coming a day when that video will play for everyone to see. Well, everything, everything will be on display. You know, I think about the events of the last few weeks where I've learned about someone that I've had a high respect for all of my, all of my Christian life, a famous apologist by the name of Ravi Zacharias. Have you heard of him? Ravi Zacharias. I've listened to his uh, speeches over and over again at colleges. For years, he seemed like the great example of a humble Christian man who was brilliant and would, in just a matter of moments, tear apart any philosophy that, that, uh, that robbed from Jesus Christ. Any philosophy that came away from, a, that departed from a Christian view. He'd written many books, and you loved to hear him speak just the way he spoke. He was dynamic in a room. I watched his funeral this last year online. No one could come to it, of course, because of the pandemic, but it was streamed online. The vice president of the United States came and spoke at Ravi Zacharias's funeral. And they said, when, uh, well, he did not say this, but I'd heard it said, when, when R.C. Sproul passed away, we lost the, the great theologian. When Billy Graham passed away, we lost the great evangelist. And when Ravi Zacharias passed away, we lost the great apologist. And I've watched in horror over the last few weeks as revelations have come to light about the double life that he led. Soliciting inappropriate pictures from women, extramarital affairs, adultery on a massive level, and then abusing it so much so that after he had had relations with a woman that was not his wife, he would say, let's pray and thank God for this opportunity that we had. 
And as I was listening to these things come to light, as I was reading them, and it wasn't like, it wasn't like a group of people who really wanted to bring him down. It was his own organization that had to, because of all of the accusations, do an investigation and came up with this significant evidence. When I read all these things, it was as if the Lord reminded me, you know, Josh, there's coming a day when every, everything that's been hidden is going to be dug up. He knows. You can fool me. You can fool your spouse. You can fool the church. You can fool your community. And you can have a full auditorium and sanctuary at your funeral. And I can say the nicest things about you. But it doesn't matter what I say because you're going to stand, I'm going to stand, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, it ought to make us all the more fervent to make what we've been given in our life count. That's why giving to the gospel cause, that's why living a life that is genuine and authentic, and that's not to say that we won't sin, but to stop pretending like we don't. Lord, forgive us where we've done that and help us not to sin. We must all appear, we've seen the certainty, the extent, the purpose, the authority, the judgment seat of Christ. You know, I think of, I think of when Jesus was brought before that unfair trial right before his death. In the middle of the night, Peter had just told him, Jesus, I love you. Wherever you go, I'll go. And he put some feet to that because in the Garden of Gethsemane, when things got rough and when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter was willing to take out his sword and cut off Malchus's ear. Jesus had told him previously that evening, Peter, before, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me three times. And the Bible says that Peter was able to come into the inner court because of some relationships that he had. And he was able to see Jesus from a distance. And several times, one time, two times, someone asked him, hey, don't you follow Jesus? He said, no, no, absolutely not. You've got it wrong. And then the third time, the Bible says, that when they, he was uh, asked whether or not he was a follower of Jesus, the Bible says he cursed them and said, I do not know that man. And the Bible tells us that across that courtyard, Jesus looked at him and peered into his soul, into his heart. Can you imagine looking into the eyes of Jesus who gave everything for your sin and having such little to offer. You're right. You saved me and then I just continued to live just like that. Can you imagine? It's going to be a fair judgment. My children all the time will tell me that's not fair. I can't wait till they're older and they get the joke of me saying, well, this ain't a democracy. In the Hall House, it's a dictatorship, and I'm a ruthless dictator in the Hall House. But in reality, life's not fair, but this will be fair. God's judgment will be fair. Scripture tells us in 2 Timothy 4, 6, or excuse me, 2 Timothy 4, 8, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me 
on that day. It's going to be a fair judgment. He's not going to deal unfairly. He knows what advantages have been given to some and what disadvantages others have had. And let me tell you something, friends. As American Christians, we have a whole lot to answer for. Freedom and availability to be immersed in the Word. And though we may have it in every room in our house, it's most certainly not stored up in our hearts. It's going to be a fair judgment. It will be a thorough judgment. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive the commendation from God. He's going to uncover everything. It's going to be a thorough, a thorough judgment, and it will be final. Look with me now at the basis to receive the things done in the body. You can read this in our uh, outline. We're running out of time. But it's those things that you think, those things that you speak, those things that you act. What you think, what goes on in here is important. It's not just what comes out your mouth. It's not just what you do. It's not just Hitler who's killed his millions, but it's the anger, the unrighteous anger that exists in here and in here that we still have to put to death as believers. We're going to give account for our thought life. We're going to give an account for how we speak. Matthew 12, 36 through 7, Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. That's frightening to me because i got a big mouth. Some of you can sit back and feel pretty good at this point if it weren't for our first point, which is what you think, which is already a very heavy thing. But we're going to give an account for every careless word. You don't have the right to say whatever you want to the people in traffic, to the people at your work, to your family members, whoever's wrong you. You don't have the right to say whatever you want. You will give an account for every careless word. I will give an account for every careless word and how we act. And the result is we will receive. We will receive. There's going to be positive rewards. All types of crowns are mentioned throughout the New Testament. These will not be crowns that you, uh, I, I don't believe these are crowns that you really keep for yourself and wear around and look and say, hey, look at me, look at what I've done. But crowns that you'll cast at the feet of Jesus. Thanking him, everything that I've done, it's been because of you. Every good thing in my life, it's all because of you. There'll be positive rewards. There'll also be negative rewards. I say rewards, but it'll be suffering loss. 1 Corinthians 3.15 says this, No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver or precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on that foundation survives, he will receive a reward, and if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now listen, friends, this is not a judgment seat to decide whether or not you go to heaven or whether you go to hell. I'm proud to say that's already been taken care of by Jesus. Our destination is set. But this is an accountability for what you have done with the time that you've been given. 
and the resources that you've been given. It doesn't refer to salvation, but it does refer to the loss of what you could have had otherwise. That's why Paul tells us to redeem the time. Haven't we wasted enough time in sin and in the flesh? Haven't we wasted enough time on the things of this world? The anxieties of this world, the fears of this world, the anger of this world, the lust of this world, the greed of this world, the pride of this world. Haven't we lost enough time already? Redeem the time. Whatever time you have left, let it be as if you have no other obligation other than to serve the Lord. If you know that this day is coming and you've heard it today, and you know it today, if you've heard it no other time but tonight, at this time, you know this day is coming, so be ready. Let this be a defining mile marker in your life where you decided everything I do, Lord, I want to be for that day. When I stand before you, I want from this day forward it to be said of me that I was faithful and then I, I poured out my resources before you and I said, Lord, they are yours. The judgment seat of Christ will all stand before this judgment seat. Are you ready? Thank you for joining us for this episode of First Importance. We invite you to check out our other sermons on this podcast and to join us in person on Sunday at 8.30 or 11 a.m. as well as streaming live on Facebook and YouTube on Sundays at 11 a.m. We hope to see you soon at First Baptist West Memphis where we love God, care for one another, and share the gospel. Mm -hmm.